It's so good to be here. Um, just want to thank Pastor Rick. This was really his vision. He called me about a year and a half ago and said, hey, we really want to bring CBMW out to the West Coast. For those of you who aren't familiar, CBMW stands for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And this organization has actually been around for 30 years. It was started in 1987 by John Piper and Wayne Grudem, and they had the foresight and the vision to say, hey, we need an organization that is going to equip the church on what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what is marriage, and how does all of this function in the church. And so they started this organization in 1987, and I uh, have benefited greatly from this organization. I got my hands uh, on a book called Recovering uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood when I was a young bachelor. I remember I read that book on a plane trip from New Orleans to Houston, or at least a couple chapters. And that book altered the course of my life because I realized, I was like, this is the type of woman that I need to marry. This is the type of woman that I need to be looking for. And that book came from this organization. So in many ways, I can thank this organization for, the, for my beautiful wife, Grace Anna, because God used uh, CBMW in many ways uh, to lead me to her. But if you would, uh, tonight, I want to talk about marriage. Marriage. And I want to do that from Ephesians chapter 5. So if you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians 5.15. Ephesians 5.15. The Apostle Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would see and understand what a beautiful gift marriage is, and what a incredible gift a godly marriage is to this dark and lost world. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would see and understand that marriage is important because it pictures the most glorious reality in the universe, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would all strive those of us who are married, to have marriages that redeem the time. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I'm going to start tonight with an interesting quote I saw recently from the most famous sermon ever preached in America. The sermon is called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. And I was reading this the other day, and, and I just came across this, and it just is one of those things that you read and you have a double take and you come back and read it again, but this is what Edward said. He said, people are now, present tense, the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth, yea, doubles with many that are now in this congregation. That it, that it may be 
are at ease and quiet that he is with many of these that are now in the flames of hell. In other words, God has wrath and anger towards those that are alive now as he does towards those that are in hell. That language should sound familiar to us, right? What does Paul say in Romans 1? He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is right now being revealed before our very eyes. How? When the truth is suppressed. In other other words, God is handing out and giving out wrath as men in unrighteousness suppress the truth. So just this past week, this is this past week, Religion News Service, which is supposed to be a Christian news service, one of their editors praised a so-called Christian blogger who has come out for gay marriage and has said this so-called Christian blogger is, a, is courageous and heroic and those who would say anything otherwise are bigoted and hateful. This week, the wrath of God is being revealed when the truth is suppressed. This week, a girl in New York came out and said, there's no reason why I should not be allowed to join the Boy Scouts of America. They've already allowed uh, girls who claim to be boys to join. There's no reason now that a girl should not be allowed to join. Why? Because gender actually doesn't mean anything at all. The truth of God is being suppressed and the wrath of God is revealed. This week, Netflix announced that they were going back to Bill Nye's old show on Bill Nye the Science Guy, and they were reworking it, they were re-editing it, because Bill Nye said that chromosomes determine gender. And of course, now he's doing this big Netflix special, Bill Nye Saves the World, and his big thing is that gender is a social construct. So they've gone back and edited it. The wrath of God is revealed when the truth is suppressed. And it is this day and time that we live. This dark age. And we as Christians have an opportunity to either fade away into the night or to shine a light into the darkness. And that's why I think Ephesians is so important because Paul is writing this to a group of Christians who live in a dark world. Paul is writing this to Christians who are facing evil and satanic attacks. And that's why in Ephesians 6, the famous passage about the armor of God, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's not naive. We are in a battle. We are in a dark world. And so if you know the outline of Ephesians, it's really easy to understand. The first three chapters 
are about the grace that God has given us. In other words, salvation is completely and totally by grace. And really, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, many of us have memorized that, sums that up well. For by grace you are saved, but you, are, you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not of, not of works, so no one can boast. Then, in chapter 4, Paul switches gears. And he says, okay, so you've been saved completely by grace, not of your own doing. Chapter 4, 5, and 6 are about how you then live as someone who's been radically saved by grace. How do you live as someone that's not trying to earn your salvation, but somebody that's thanking God because he's already saved you? And one of the themes that he uses in the second half of the book is this theme of walking. This theme of walking. So I want you to look down at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, walk in a way that honors the God who called you out of darkness. Again, this is a command that is given only to Christians. He's saying, you've been called out of darkness, now walk like it. Look over at verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, you are different now. You've been saved. You are to walk differently. Then in 5, chapter 5, verse 2, he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Only a Christian knows the love of Christ like that. And he's saying, you who have seen this love that's been given to you in Christ, you are to walk in that way in this dark world, showing others the love of Christ. And then in verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, he says, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. We're to walk as children of light. That's our new identity in this dark world. Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount said that we are the salt and light of the earth. We are to be a light on a hill, a beacon of light in a dark world. And finally, the final time he uses this metaphor is the verse that I want us to look at tonight in verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He says, look carefully, watch out, watch where you're going. I have two small daughters at home, I guess you could call them small, six and four, and I have this double jogging stroller. Have any of y'all seen these massive double jogging, they take up the whole sidewalk, and I'm still pushing, I have a six and, and four-year-old, this is, you know, I'm pushing these girls up these hills is no joke of a workout, and one of the games that they like to play when we go on these runs is they say, Daddy, close your eyes and we're going to tell you where to go. <laughs> and so I'll play along, I'll be running, pushing them, 
and they'll be like, close your eyes now, and, and don't worry, I'm like doing this on a, on a straight path of road, I'm not doing it by a major, major highway, and I'll close my eyes for three or four or five seconds, and of course, they're telling me, daddy, go right, or go left, and I know that if I go right, I'm in somebody's driveway, or if I go left, I'm, I'm, I'm going off into the embankment. It's, it's kind of scary. And so I open my eyes. Because the point is, we, we have to know, we have to watch carefully where we're going. When I was in college, uh, I read uh, John Krakenauer's Into Thin Air. Has anybody ever read that book? It's been out for a while. It's basically about this Everest expedition. Anyway, that got me really interested in mountain climbing. Not actually doing it, but the idea of it, right? I'm a Texan, you know, I'm used to these flat plains, so I don't know how well I do on a mountain anyway, but... I started just kind of, you know, getting into reading about mountain climbing, and one of, one of uh, the climbers that I just kind of latched onto, uh, maybe you've heard his name, is Yuli Steck. And this guy set speed records up the Eiger, climbing the Eiger in two hours and 47 minutes, and somebody beat him, and then he came back five years later and climbed it in, other, in under two and a half hours. Set speed records on the Matterhorn, twice named Mountaineer of the Year, uh, National Geographic named him uh, the Adventurer of the Year. Last weekend, last weekend, last Saturday night, he's, he's training for his third no-oxygen trip up Everest, and on the mountain next to Everest, he slips and he falls a thousand meters and dies. The most famous climber in the world. And Paul's saying to Christians here, look carefully how you walk. Because the greatest Christian can still fall. So walk as wise, not as unwise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I want to focus on this phrase, making the best use of the time, and I'm actually going to translate it, redeem the time. There are two words used in Greek for time. One is chronos, is where we get the word chronology or chronological, and it just means standard time. Right now it's 8.35 p.m. The other word is kairos, which means a season, a strategic period of time. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's a strategic opportunity. And this word for making the best use of actually means to buy up or to buy back. And so what Paul is saying is buy up a strategic opportunity. It's like a real estate property that you find out it's, it's on sale and you have a limited window to go and buy it. It's here today and gone tomorrow. You have a limited opportunity to buy it up. And Paul's saying the same is true of our time. In the scriptures, Christians are told to steward two things, time and money. Of those two, you could argue that time is more important. Why? Because you can always get more money. You can always inherit more money, build up a business, get more money, but you can never get more time. In the Bible, it says that our days are fixed. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 27, 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? So the psalmist says in Psalm 90:12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart by wisdom. So Paul says to buy up the time because the days are evil. Now this is interesting, this, this phrase, because the days are evil, because you can look at it two ways. You can look at it, okay, we need to, from the negative sense, we need to be careful. We need to be careful how we're using our time that we don't fall into doing something evil. Or what I think is more likely, you can look at it from the positive sense, that you can buy up time that is being used by Satan for evil. You can redeem time in a dark world. So what I want to talk about with the remainder of our time is how do we do that? And one of the ways that I'm convinced that we redeem time in this dark world, in this world that is under the wrath of God, is through entering and building godly marriages. Marriages that redeem the time. Paul says later on, and we'll get to this, that marriage is a mystery, that it reveals the relationship of Christ to his church. That marriage is not just an institution that points to itself, but it points to a greater reality, the reality of Christ's love for his church. Therefore, marriage is not just an end of itself, but it's meant to display the glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. A godly marriage where two spouses are selflessly serving each other, therefore, is a city on a hill. It's a light in a dark world. A godly marriage is the salt of the earth. It stands forth as an institution preserving what is good about marriage, sex, and raising children. A godly marriage raises up children in the scriptures to be arrows of light to be sent out in a dark world. A godly marriage shows a world hyped up on pornography that sex is truly sacred and good within the covenant of marriage. And a godly marriage stands as the most foundational building block of culture in every church, institution, and society. And most importantly, a godly marriage places a spotlight on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, how do we do that? How do we establish godly marriages in this culture that redeem the time? Six ways to redeem the time in our marriages. So I'm going to go through six quick application points. All right? First, redeem the time by pursuing the will of God. Redeem the time by, by pursuing the will of God. Look at verse 17. Paul says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The word for foolishness is aphron. It means without sense, foolish, silly. The picture is someone who lives their life without sense or purpose. Someone who walks through life flippantly, without direction, without reason. That's why divorce is so prevalent in our cultures, because people don't actually know what marriage is. People don't know why and how God designed it. I was officiating a wedding a couple years ago, 
and it's the rehearsal dinner the night before the wedding. And of course, I'm the minister, I'm there, and so they're like, hey Grant, you know, it's like one of those token prayers that you do at the rehearsal dinner, can you do the prayer? I said, no problem, I'll do the prayer. I'm praying, and I'm just praying that God would bless this marriage, and one of the things that I pray for is that God, in his timing, would bless this couple with children. The room erupts in laughter. People think that's funny. I'm like, you don't know what marriage is for? When I read the marriage preamble at a wedding, this is what I say. I say, I just stand up, everybody's there, everybody sits down, say, this is what I say, I say, marriage is a special and unique relationship appointed by God and set apart as sacred, signifying the wonderful spiritual union between Christ and his church. It is therefore not to be entered upon lightly or carelessly, but thoughtfully with reverence for God, with due consideration for the purposes for which it was established by God. It was established by God for the companionship, help, and strength which husband and wife ought to give to each other. It was established for the continuance of family life as God intended that children who are gifts from the Lord should be carefully brought up and trained to obey God. It was ordained for the welfare of human society, which can be strong and happy only when the marriage bond is held in honor. And I pause, and I look out, and it looks like people think that I came from a different planet. Because people have no idea now what marriage is for. And so as Christians, we are going to redeem this time in this lost world by knowing what God's design and will is for marriage. We are going to understand, we're going to go back and look at Genesis chapter 2 and we're going to see that it's God who created marriage. That it was God who brought Eve to Adam. That it's God who created sex, not Hugh Hefner. That it's God who appointed one man and one woman to, get, to come together into a covenant made with him between them and him. This is God's doing. This is God's will. And as Christians, we have to know his will for marriage. Point two. Redeem the time by being filled with the Spirit. Verse 18 do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul contrasts being drunk with being filled. The idea here is what is controlling you. As believers, we are all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, baptized in the Holy Spirit. So it's not a question of whether the Spirit's living inside of you. It's the question of whether or not you are yielded to the Spirit. Are you yielded to the Holy Spirit's work in your life? And when you have a couple a husband and a wife who independently are seeking the Lord and are yielded by the Spirit and then yielding their marriage to the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful entity in this culture. So what does that mean? What does that look like to be filled with the Spirit? There's a lot of debate about that. People talk about, you know, do you have to do a certain thing to be filled with the Spirit? I'd submit to you one thing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, 
so the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is causing us to behold the glory of the Lord. So the, the way that we know if we're filled with the Spirit is simply this. Are you beholding Christ? Are you treasuring Christ? If you read through Acts, when it says that Paul's filled with the Spirit, people will stone him and he'll get up and keep sharing the gospel. He keeps declaring Christ. Why? Because he's filled with the Spirit. It's yearning to see Christ. How do you do? Pick up your Bible. Pick up tonight and read the book of Mark together. Read Romans together. Read Isaiah together and see Christ and be transformed. That's the work of the Spirit. Third, redeem the time by exhorting each other to worship. Redeem the time in your marriage by exhorting each other to worship. And this is really the result of being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit causes us to yearn to worship Christ. And Paul says, in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here is telling the Ephesian church, you need to come together out of the overflow of your heart of longing to worship Christ and you need to come together corporately and sing praises and psalms, and hymns to Christ. Now, if this is true of the church corporately, it's also true of our marriages and families within the church. Husband and wife are to worship the Lord together. They don't make idols out of each other. Instead, they both fix their eyes on Christ and encourage each other to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a constant encouragement going on within marriage to worship the Lord Jesus and to worship. I once heard it said that every man needs a wife if for no other reason to keep him humble. Eve was created as Adam's what? His Ezer, his helper. Men need help. Paul's going to say that women, that you need a leader in marriage. We need each other. We are to spur each other on in worship. How do we know whether or not we're doing that? Paul gives us the litmus test. What is it? Thankfulness. He says, always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Worship is defined by our thankfulness to God. The psalmist says in Psalm 95 too, he says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So in this essence of worship, there's thanksgiving. Psalm 104 says, 100 verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. We are to thank God for his love, his mercy, his grace. And when you have a husband and a wife who are thankful to God, it overflows into worship. You don't see thankfulness and gratitude much in our culture anymore. 
even on Thanksgiving Day, it's, you know, just sitting around watching the Cowboys and the, and the Detroit Lions bang it out. Thankfulness brings us to worship. And as we worship, we redeem the time. Fourth, redeem the time by putting the other person first. This is fairly self-explanatory. Paul says in Ephesians 5.19, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Nothing captivates a fallen world more than selflessness. Husbands who put their wife's interest above their own, who sit down on a Tuesday night for one hour and watch Fixer Upper, like I do every Tuesday night. Are you still on your phone? Yeah. Wives who sit down and watch all four days of the Masters. The goal is to outdo each other in service, to outdo each other in love, to serve each other. And this is the example of Christ, right? This is what Christ did for us. I was once at a conference uh, with this British footballer, soccer player named Gavin Peacock, who sometimes speaks for us, and there was about 2,000 men in the group in Dominican Republic. So just fix, imagine a huge church, we're doing a Q&A up on the stage, and they asked this British soccer player, they said, Gavin, you are trying to lead your household, but your wife refuses to submit. What do you do? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm glad I didn't get that question. And really without hesitation, he said, you know, you do like Jesus did. You take up your loins, you grab a towel, and you wash her feet. And you serve her. This is the example of Christ. Who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. In the same way, out of reverence for Christ, we are to serve one another. Fifth, and this one is specifically for wives. Wives, redeem the time by submitting to your husband. Paul says this in Ephesians 5.22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Paul's saying that wives are to submit to their husband's leadership, not to other men. You don't submit to other men generally, but to your husband specifically. And it doesn't matter how great a leader he is, you're to submit to him as much as you can under the lordship of Christ. Listen, it doesn't matter how great a leader a man is. It could be Bill Belichick or Winston Churchill. He could be General Patton. But if the wife isn't willing to submit to him, they're going nowhere. The command is for the wife to submit to her husband, not for the husband to make his wife submit. So wives, this is is the onus is on you here. You, You have to submit to your own husband as much as you can in the lordship of Christ. That doesn't mean being a doormat. 
That doesn't mean being a yes woman. You're, you're supposed to help him. You're supposed to say, you probably should stop and ask for directions before you drive our family around for another 30 minutes. Strong men need strong women. It's, it's not something less valuable to be a helper. God is called the helper to Israel in the Old Testament, but this is the role you are to play. You are to help your husband, and you are to submit to his leadership. You can't have two heads in a marriage. If you do, you have a monster. If no one's leading, and there's no head, you have a dead person. You can only have one head, and that's the husband, and you have to follow him. And ladies, God, if, if you are married tonight, you are married because God put you there. We have this saying in Texas, everyone's just a turtle on a fence post. And when, when you say that, everybody else in the room says, someone had to put them there, right? Because you never just, right? Turtles don't crawl up fence posts. <laughs> so you have to flesh things out a little bit in California. But if you're married, it's because we believe in the kind, providential hand of God. You're married because God put you in that marriage. And so as much as you can, under the lordship of Christ, be that man's helper and submit to him. Six and finally, and this one is obviously for husbands, redeem the time by loving your wife. And this command is by far more difficult and challenging than the command for wives. Because Paul's going to explain how. Look at verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, your job is to love and give yourself for your wife like Christ gave himself up for his bride. Could there be a more challenging task? You're supposed to measure up to Jesus, how Jesus gave his life for his church. You are to give your life for your bride? That's awesome. That's such a heavy and weighty responsibility. The Bible declares that because of our sin, that Jesus came down voluntarily and took on our flesh. And contrary to the National Geographic specials I, I saw a couple weeks ago around Easter, Jesus wasn't a victim of the religious elite. Jesus marched to the cross. Four times in Luke's Gospel, he gathers his disciples around and says, hey guys, this is where I'm going. I am going to Jerusalem to die for sinners. And I will rise again from the dead. Four times he says that in Luke's gospel. In John, when Jesus is arrested and Judas Iscariot comes in to the Garden of Gethsemane, they're trying to find Jesus. They're asking, you know, who is Jesus? Where, where is Jesus? Jesus has an interesting response. They say, are you Jesus? And Jesus says, I am. 
which if you remember, that's the divine name of God that God gives to Moses from the burning bush. And when he says that, John says that the entire Roman cohort that was there to arrest him and all the temple guards, they fell to the ground and they were pinned there. He actually uses a wrestling term in the Greek. They're pinned to the ground. Jesus allows them to get up. He says, who do you seek? They say, oh, well, we seek you, Jesus. Jesus says, well, you, you can take me, but you can't take these apostles. So at that point, you ever wonder, why does you know, Peter lash out? Well, he knows who's in, who's in charge now. He takes out his sword and cuts off the high priest's uh, aide's ear, Malchus's name, and Jesus picks it up puts it back on and says, Peter, put away your sword. I have 10,000 angels at my beck and call ready to come in here. Here's the point. Jesus willingly let himself be taken captive to go to the cross. He marched to the cross and absorbed all of our shame, all of your shame, your shame, when the, when the Roman soldiers in the garrison marched in front of him and were spitting on him and hitting him in the head, he was absorbing your shame, your wrath. And when he went to the cross, he did it for you if you are in Christ Jesus because you're his bride. And so husbands, you are to love your wives in that way. You're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Arthur West. Does that name ring a bell? Arthur West. Thirty-six years old. April fifteenth, nineteen twelve. Arthur is making a trip with his wife Ada. It is two daughters. Constance, who's five, and Barbara, who's ten months. And they're making a trip from England to the United States on board the Titanic. And when the ship hit the iceberg, Arthur West ushered his wife and his daughters as quickly as he could to lifeboat number ten. He put them on the lifeboat. And then he realized that his daughters would probably need something to eat and drink. And so he ran back to his cabin, got something for them to eat, and a flask of milk. And he went back out on the deck, and by this time, lifeboat number 10 had been lowered down into the water. So this is, you know, this is, this is a huge ship. That's why they called it the Titanic. And so Arthur grabs the chains and climbs all the way down to lifeboat number 10 in the water. And he gives his wife Ada the food and the flask of milk. But he doesn't stay there. He climbs back up onto the ship. He didn't want to risk that boat capsizing. And he perished. He gave his life for his wife and daughters. 
That's what we are called to do, men. I want to close with one more story because I think it's a couple that really redeemed the time well in their marriage. It's a couple that when I was in the Marine Corps, my wife Grace Ann and I, we were stationed in Japan. And this was a really small community we were in and um, everybody kind of knew everybody on base. But there was a couple that went to our church. We went to a Calvary Chapel in Iwakuni. And there was a couple who went to our church and he was also the Navy dentist on base. So everybody kind of knows him because everybody has to get their dental checkup. And he's the dentist on the base. And his name was Ned Weichel. And he and his wife, Dana, were just this beautiful couple. They lit up a room. They could be on a cover of a magazine. They were absolutely beautiful together. They had three beautiful children together. Um, just loved Jesus and each other well, and, and just, we had the joy and privilege of hanging out with them a lot and getting to know them and, and sharing meals together. And So eventually we moved back to the States, and they moved back to the States, and, and we kind of went our separate ways, but just kept up via Facebook and everything else. Well, two years ago, we found out that Ned had cancer. And it's just, it's like, man, this guy is like 31 years old. And we just, you know, how these things go. You follow along on social media, and, and a year goes by, and last spring, Ned died. And we reached out to Dana and, and have, you know, exchanged messages and, and, and things like that. But Dana, after Ned died, put something on her Facebook wall. And... It was so powerful because it just perfectly pictures what a marriage, a godly marriage, is supposed to be in this culture. And I asked her if I could read what she said to you. And she said I could. Here's what she said. She said, the pain that we feel to never hold Ned again seems unbearable at this moment. But the unconditional love he gave me and us for these past eight years will last a lifetime. My sweet Ned, there will never be a day that I don't long to see your smile, hug your neck, or hear you say, babe, you're doing an awesome job. You were a beautiful leader and encourager. You sacrificed your life to turn my face and the faces of your children more toward Jesus than ever before. What a leader, what a godly man, what a beautiful legacy you have left your children. What an amazing husband you have been to me. I will love you until the day I die, and then I will see you again. This couple redeemed the time. And everybody that's known them and has watched them has seen what a godly marriage is supposed to be like in a dark world. They bought it up. Eight years. They bought the time that they had up for Christ. And so should we. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a light in a dark world. That these folks gathered here in Southern California would leverage their marriages for the glory of Christ. They would leverage their marriages to redeem every time that they have. 
to picture the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. We thank you, Lord, for, our word, for your word that you haven't left us without instruction, that you have laid things out so clearly, theologically, what we are supposed to do and how we are supposed to live. And we pray, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would do it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.